You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Glad you are all here. If you are new, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor. I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. Uh, it's been a crazy week and lots of good things have been happening. As you can see, we're preparing for lots of things. We're already planning Christmas and all of next year's sermons. So there's a lot going on at the church. And if you wonder, what does Simon do all day? Does he just like take naps and then someone gives him a sermon? No, we do a lot of other things as well as taking naps. Um, with that being said, uh, we're going to jump into the sermon this morning. So I had an opportunity this week, Annette and I, we have some friends that decided to move to Scotland, Tim and Ray. They moved out there about a year and a half ago and they just wanted to be in a different country, a post-Christian world, and like, what does it look like to be a Christian in a, in a culture that has kind of, kind of, the church has turned away from what it was? And so as we talked with them, we were really encouraged because we were kind of jumped back into the conversations that we always had. It was very natural. You ever have that conversation where you haven't talked with someone for a couple of years, you call them, and you just start talking. There's no like, oh, tell me that. You just start talking. That's how it was. And they were talking about how God's been growing them in their faith. And they were talking about um, like the church that they're going to now. They're now. Now they're at a Reformed Anglican church. They're like, it's very different. It's not like we're used to. I'm like, I bet it's not. And then they just started talking about how God is moving in Scotland. And God is doing things. And their church is growing. And people are hungry for his word. And my hope today is this. As we move back into the book of Acts, on our, this is our third part of being in Acts, you do one big chunk a year, is that you're going to have a similar experience that I had with my friends this week, that you're going to kind of pick back up where you left off as you get to hear what God has been doing, what God continues to do, and what he's calling us to do, that you would be involved with that. Now, I understand this. There's a lot of new faces here. That's a good thing. We're glad that new faces are here. And you may have not gotten to the place where we are in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 13. You're like, wait, I haven't been with you. You can go back and listen to those. But I want to just do a quick recap so you kind of know where we are on our journey. So as we jump back in, we kind of know the landing place of where we are in the big scheme of things. The book of Acts is really about the gospel message going forward into the world. That's really what we have. We have the acts of the church, the acts of the Holy Spirit that empowers them to take the gospel forward. But what we see is that we pick up the book of Acts and the resurrected Jesus Christ is preaching and teaching his followers for the last 40 days. Before he leaves, we have this verse in Acts 1.8, which says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And oddly enough, there's these three things that are going on, and the book of Acts is actually broken up into three distinct parts of those things playing out in the Bible. And so part one was we saw the church in Jerusalem. We saw the Holy Spirit come down. We saw uh, men and women speaking in tongues, communicating Jesus is Lord and Christ. We see that Peter starts to bold, boldly preach the word of God. Uh, even in uh, persecution, he's still preaching the word of God. And many Jewish men and women started to proclaim Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Lord and Savior. And the church then starts to grow rapidly. We, we read these verses, 3,000 here, 4,000 here. All these people are understanding who Jesus is and they're worshiping him as Lord and Savior. Well, as sure as that happens, anytime good things happen, we know exactly what we should expect, which is persecution. And the church then starts to go under persecution. 
And the men and women that love Jesus are starting to spread out to the surrounding areas because it got very dangerous in Jerusalem. And so that led us to part two, where they started going to Judea and Samaria, the surrounding regions where there were still Jewish men and women and the Samaritans who were these kind of half-Jewish people that were lots of conflict with the Jews, that they started to understand Jesus as Lord and Savior and they started to worship him as well. We learn of a man named Saul who shows up, who would ultimately become the Apostle Paul. He's attacking the church and the message of Jesus as Lord and Savior to the point where he's imprisoning Christians, he's killing Christians to get them to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. But God decides to choose him as a mouthpiece for him and to show the power of Jesus as Lord and Savior that transforms and saves lives. And so they realized that he was the long-awaited Messiah promised through all the Old Testament. And then we also see the first non-Jewish people saved right around chapter 12 where Peter preaches to Cornelius and his family come to know Jesus. And suddenly we realize that this, this God who loves his people is actually doing something greater than just the Jewish community. But it's really for the entire world that God would save the entire world. Which leads us to part three, where once Saul, who is now the Apostle Paul, and his friend Barnabas, and this guy named John Mark that we'll talk about in a few more weeks, are on their first of three missions trips to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's where we find ourselves. And our last sermon... We left off with uh, Barnabas and Paul taking off. They were in fellowship. They were in communion. They were worshiping God and, God. and God said, hey, I want you to set aside Paul and Barnabas and go send them out to go spread the word of the Lord. And so they do. And that's how they take off. And so uh, they end up going on this first. If you want to throw the map up there, I even have a laser pointer because that's what smart people have. Um, what you see is this is the, the, the first of three journeys. And so we're just going to do one at a time because if you put all of them on top, it's super hard to understand. But what we want you to see is where they went. So they started in a place called Antioch. And then they, uh, Barnabas goes to his home island here in Cyprus and preaches. And then they move up to Perga. And then ultimately where we're going to be is another town called Antioch. And you say, why would they leave Antioch to go to Antioch if they're already in Antioch? The ancient world was a strange place with similar names of places. And so when I'm talking about Antioch, this is the church where they were sent from, but there's another Antioch with a lot of history behind it to where they're ultimately going to go. And so I show that so you kind of know what's going on as they go up and back around. And then this one line here, don't worry about that. That's John Mark. We'll talk about him later. But here's what I'm going to do. We're going to cover about 47 verses today, and I'm just not going to read them all at once. But what I am going to do is this. I want to read chunks of what's going on, and I want us to just kind of talk about what's being done in each one of these segments so we can understand, okay? Does that sound fair? Good, because I don't have a backup plan. So let me pray, and we will jump into this passage. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message, the message of your mission going forward, that you have sent someone to each and every one of our lives at some point as a missionary to teach us the truth of Jesus Christ. None of us stand here on our own, but it was always through the, pro the proclamation of the gospel 
to men and women who don't know you that have been saved. And so we are recipients of that, and we thank you that the mission went forward. We thank you that it went to the ends of the earth, and without that, we wouldn't be where we are today. So we thank you and praise you for our salvation that resides in you and you alone. Lord, I ask that we communicate this morning that you would show us the reality of what this mission looks like and that there will be opposition and there will be those who do come to you and worship you and praise you as Lord and Savior. But that we are simply called to trust you, to step out in faith and bring the word of the Lord to a lost and broken world. We love you. Pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. I've been confused all week. I say, oh, Acts 13, 13, and everyone's like confused. So don't, I won't do that. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. We're going to read 13 through 16 to start with. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Patmos to come to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseidon, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I'm going to stop right there. Um, sharing the gospel can seem intimidating and scary all at the same time. But if you understand the example that's set before us with Paul and Barnabas and what they were doing, it actually breaks into some very easy to understand things that they're doing. My first point is this. They were looking for opportunities. Everywhere they went, they looked for an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with people, not because they hated them, but because they truly loved them and didn't want to see them perish and be separated from God. So they looked for opportunities. Now, it was common for Paul that he would go into synagogues and he would, they would read from the scrolls, right? And they would read about the law and then they would read the prophets. And then what would happen is something kind of like a commentary section, kind of what we're doing now. We read God's word and we talk about it. So a little similar to that, but different people would share during that time. Now, Paul was raised in this world and understood this and shared many times, so it wouldn't be uncommon for Paul to share and for people to say, oh, you've been trained under XYZ, you should come and share as well and bring us some encouragement. And that's exactly what the rulers of that synagogue did. They saw Paul and they said, would you be willing to share any words of encouragement? Boy, did they pick the right guy. <laughs> and Paul is going to give them, and hear this, the most encouraging thing that he can which is the gospel. If you want to encourage somebody, the most encouraging thing you can bring to any individual is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a God who loves them, pursues them, died for them to give them eternal life so they could be with him for forever. And so at this point, Paul is going to move into a very simple four-point message is really what he's going to do. It's all about Jesus. It's something that I think is actually helpful for us as we think about as we share Jesus. Maybe you're intimidated by that or uh, don't know how to go about that. Well, Paul's given us an example of what that looks like and, and how to do that. It is the greatest news the world has ever heard, that there is a God who saves sinners, who forgives sins and brings them in proximity and relationship with him. And it should be our very motivation that we would want every individual in this world to hear that message and love the Lord the same way that we do. And so my next point is this. They knew the message. 
And I think for a lot of us, sometimes we go, oh, you should share the gospel. They're like, yeah, but they don't know what that means. And they need to understand what it means. And Paul understood it. And so what I want to do is I want to read what Paul says. Uh, this is the first recorded gospel presentation from Paul. So we know that he probably shared the gospel many times before that, but this is the first time it's been recorded. And what we have in the book of Acts is as he shares Jesus Christ with Jews and Gentiles and then the response that flows from it. So let's read 17 through 32. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love how that's put. <laughs> and after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David these sons of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before this, his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John had finished his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, and among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what prom uh, God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. <clears throat> so Paul's really giving us this easy to understand four-point sermon of what it looks like. And the points are really simple. I want to just share the points. He shares the Old Testament. He shares the history of those people and the anticipation of what God was doing and starting to build out the overarching meta-narrative. When I say meta-narrative, all I mean is this. The Bible is one story with lots of little stories that all represent the big story. That's all I'm saying when I say that. And then the second thing that he does is he talks about the New Testament. As he talks about the anticipation of the Old Testament of all these things are going to be done, he's talking about how Jesus in the New Testament is the fulfillment of all of those things promised before. And then what we see is he does what a lot of people do is they have supporting scriptures pointing to and building the case on the prophecies that were fulfilled and what was really being said and what God was communicating to his people. And then fourth, there's the announcement of the gospel and really the call to respond to God's word. That's what we have in his four-point sermon. And at the very, very end, we get this really quick scripture verse, which is about the conclusion 
and a warning. So that's what he does. That's what he lays out. And then what we'll do is we'll talk about how they respond. So the first thing is this. Paul knows his audience. It's important to know your audience, who you're talking to, and what they know. Do you know what they know? Paul knew these Jewish men and women understood the Old Testament, so he could kind of cruise through it pretty easily. And if you're new to the church, if you're new to reading God's Word, I'll probably throw out a lot of historical facts and ideas that you may or may not know of, and that's okay. We can talk about those later. You can talk about those in your life groups this week if you'd like to. But he starts with the Old Testament. He says, I know that you've been trained and raised in this since you were all little children, and you've heard all of these stories, that God chose the Jewish people for himself. He did it through Abraham. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to make you great, and you're going to multiply. He recounts how God blessed them how God gave Abraham sons where they shouldn't have been sons, and then they ended up in Egypt, and God actually saves uh, his chosen family, and they go to Egypt, and then as they go to Egypt, we see that God protects them from the famine of that time and what took place, but then he also multiplies them out. So this promise of the Israelites are going to be more than the stars in the sky is starting to happen, and they're multiplying and multiplying, and then ultimately, the Egyptian pharaohs realize that they're a threat, and so what they do as they enslave them. And then these people call out to their God to save them. And ultimately what we see is that God hears and saves them. He frees them from their slave masters, which would be an overarching theme that we need to understand that when we're talking about this section in, in Exodus, we're really talking about a bigger picture of the slave masters that we have in life now and the slave master that we have is sin and its effects on our lives and it controls us and it keeps us and doesn't let us be who we're ultimately designed to be. Very similar to what we see with Egypt. He reminds them of God's provision as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, that they had food, that they didn't go hungry, that their clothes didn't wear out and God provided for them. And then God gives them a promised land. And as they go into battle, a, a, a group of people that aren't warriors go into battle and God gives them victory in their battles. And what we see in this section is that God is a God who is saving his people, that doesn't abandon his people, that doesn't turn his back on his people. And when they disobeyed, God sent judges. And those judges helped them and freed them from their oppressors and turned them back to God. And then he brings up kings like Saul and David and how David was a man after God's own heart and that David was chosen to do the will of God and that there was a promise of a savior that would come from his line, from his kingdom, that another king was anticipated that they should look for. And he starts to connect all the dots of the Old Testament of what God is doing ultimately. And he's using history and facts. And more importantly, he's using the scrolls, which we would call scripture, which we would call our Bible. And he's using the Bible to communicate who God is and what he has done. And then he shifts to the New Testament. And he points out that God was calling his people to repent, to be prepared for the Savior that was going to come, this, this Jesus and then he points out this trial, this false trial that he was thrown into and that he was punished for sins that he did not commit, that were not his own, that he didn't do. And how he then fulfilled all these, uh, all what the prophets said. He was the fulfillment of everything that the prophets had said. And ultimately they hang him on a tree, they hang him on a cross and they kill him. 
and they buried Jesus in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead because death could not contain him and sin could not hold him. And after he raised him from the dead, he went around and he preached the gospel for 40 days to hundreds and hundreds of people. And really what, and I, why didn't they write down those messages? Those are the ones that I want to hear really bad, right? But all he really did is he said, I went through the Old Testament and I talked about how all of it was about me. So what Paul is doing is exactly what Jesus did as well. So what we need to understand, if you're looking for like, what point should I talk about when I'm talking about Jesus and who he is? Well, the points are laid out in his sermon. One, Jesus is God in the flesh. Two, he is without sin. So first we realize fully God, fully man, right? So that's important for us to understand that he is holy, he's set apart, he's different than us. He's without sin, meaning that he actually was able to live the life that we couldn't live. He did what Adam was supposed to do but couldn't. That he has met God's standard, which means that he can be in relationship with God and that he has access to God, not tainted by sin, not separated from God. Three, he died in our place. That he became a substitution for us. That he died for our sins. Where we deserve to die, he died. Where we deserved wrath, he took the wrath. He rose again three days later. You say, well, that seems like, why is that so important, this whole raising from the dead thing? If our life, as we confess Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, as we place our life in his life, if he dies, what does that mean for us? We're dead, right? But if our life is placed in the life of one that raised from the dead and conquered sin and death, what does that mean for us? that we have raised and conquered sin and conquered death through him and that our life is now eternally linked to him with the Father. And then the fifth thing that we see is that show, he showed himself to others as evidence, that there was evidence of the things that he had done. He showed up to hundreds and hundreds of people and what we realize is that if, he, if people would have said, oh, he rose from the dead, they're like, no, he didn't. But all these hundreds and hundreds of people had seen him, had watched him teach, had talked to him, had touched him, and realized that he was alive. He did not die the way that they thought he should stay dead. Here's the thing. The gospel is difficult, and it's hard because you have to do something with it. You can't just ignore the gospel. You can't be like, oh, Jesus was just a really good teacher. Well, he taught that he was God. So if he's not, then he's crazy or he's a liar. So he said he was God. He died for our sins. They put him in the ground and he rose from the dead that he did something supernatural. He rose from the dead. I just don't know people that do that. And so you can't just say he's a good teacher. He's just a nice guy. He was just a, a prophet maybe. No, he didn't live like anybody else. Sinless, completely sinless. You can't just be I don't know, you, you just can't just go like, whatever about Jesus. You, you have to deal with him in some way. You have to make a decision on him. And that's the point of the gospel, that God makes it so hard to be indifferent about who he is. That was the word I was looking for. I couldn't find it earlier, but it came to me. Thank you, Jesus. You can't be indifferent about him. So, so what's going on here? He's saying that every one of us understood this man walked the earth. And he made a lot of claims. And either they're true or they're false. So what does he do? He goes to biblical text 
to then help them understand more of what's going on. And that's going to be verses 33 through 41. And he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So he uses these four, well, five technically, four different texts in his message. Uh, the first one is Psalm 2-7. So they really thought that they were talking about David in a way that, that he was where it terminated, where it landed. you got to understand, King David was the, was the king by which all kings were held to a standard by, right? So there was Saul, that went sideways. David shows up, and he's a man after God's own heart. He's about what God wants. He honors God. Yeah, he makes some mistakes along the way, but God still loves him, and he was a good king in that sense. And so from that point, we see that every king that follows is getting progressively worse, which is interesting because they keep promising this great king that will come from his line. And what he's saying is he's really speaking about Jesus as the one true eternal king and that really all of this kingship is about pointing to him ultimately. Isaiah 55, 3 promises uh, made to David. What he's really saying is fulfilled in Jesus. That there was, again, the idea of an offspring that would come, that, that Jesus is that offspring. That we know that through his line, if you, you can actually do... Um, a genealogy search on Jesus. You can actually backtrack all the way. He is a part of the line of David. He is a part of that kingly line. And so he can be that king, that earthly king, and he can be our heavenly king as well. Psalm 16.10. Now, the word corruption is weird. Uh, we use ESV as we read God's word here. It's a word-for-word -word translation Bible. And so sometimes that translation, the words get a little wonky because they don't directly transfer the way they should. So we have to find words that fit with them. But this word is corruption. And when we think of corruption, we usually think of uh, like moral corruption, right? That kind of where your mind goes. You're like, yeah, I watch the news, and so I know there's moral corruption. Of course we do. We have politicians, so we know there's moral corruption. But that's not the corruption that Paul is talking about. A better way to translate that word would be decay. And the idea of decay, as we think of decay, that's a little bit differently. When we talk about humans, we talk about humans decaying as they're buried, right? And so they're talking about David, that he was a man, though he was great, he was buried, and ultimately his body decayed. And it didn't last forever. But then he 
compares that to Christ. And as Christ was buried, he rose from the dead. His body didn't decay. It didn't become corrupted and break down that way. And that's what he's trying to say. That's, we talk about this eternal, immortal God, uh, king that would live forever, and that's Jesus. His body didn't corrupt. He didn't go away. And then Habakkuk 1.5 is the last verse that's quoted. And it's a warning of judgment. See, he wants them to know the truth. And the truth is those that are not connected to the Son, to Jesus, that there is judgment coming. And I say this with all love because it was said to me and I understand it now. You will stand before God someday and give an account for your life. Everything you've ever done, you'll stand before God. You can give an account for it now by placing your life in the life of Christ and having him be your substitute. Or you can stand before the Lord when you die and give an account for your life on your own. You ever watch those uh, court shows and, and the guy is like convicted, he's like, I'd like to represent myself. And everyone's like, oh, he's going to die. <laughs> Think of that. <laughs> that's, that's the picture I want you to have. And then he kind of, he makes this move. And it's the gospel announcement. And I think that this is where sometimes we, we forget about this part of the gospel. And the, and the final point is really about law and grace is where he's going to land. And he wants to say that sins can be forgiven, but the problem is you're looking at the wrong place to have those sins forgiven. You're looking to the law to have your sins forgiven and to make you right with God. And that's what they did, and we call that being religious. I will do these religious things, and that will make God happy with me. That will make God pleased with me. And if I do all the things, God will love me. Here's the problem. We always mess up, don't we? We can't keep all the things. And if that's the case, then we have a problem. But he is saying that the law of Moses, and we talk about it, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, they don't do what we think they can do. Yes, your sins can be forgiven. You can be freed from that bondage, from that sin that, that's produced in your life. And, and I don't need to tell you what that is because you already know what that sin is in your life. You already know what that bondage is. You already know what that brokenness is. And it's coming to mind, think on that. Hold that for a few. What is that thing that keeps you from God? That you, that you toil over, that you think on all the time, that keeps you up late at night, that makes you feel regret and shame and guilt. See, as Paul is pressing into a lot of Jewish men and women who are all about trying to keep God's law, he's saying, your religious actions cannot save you. As a matter of fact, the law does one thing and one thing only. It condemns you. I've used this analogy before. It's not uh, unique to me. I didn't come up with it. But think of the law, the Ten Commandments, as an MRI of the soul. Look at it that way. Reality is, we, we know when we have problems inside our body, we can't just look inside because then you'd be dead because you have to cut yourself open. We go to an MRI machine, and that MRI machine looks at our body and like looks at every little bit of it. It shows what's good in there. It shows what's bad in there. It shows what's missing in there. But you don't come out of an MRI machine and go, I'm healed. Praise the Lord. No. What do you do? You just now know what the problem is. What is required next? Usually, surgery. 
That's usually how you go to an MRI, you find a problem, and you get a surgeon to go in there and to, like, if it's cancer, they cut the cancer out. They go in and they attack it. If they find something that shouldn't be there, they want to go in there and remove it. See, the law is just an MRI. All it does is show that we can't meet God's perfect standard. We don't have it in ourselves to make God pleased with our works and actions. The surgeon is Jesus. And Jesus comes in and he removes the sin in our lives. He cuts it out. He removes it so we can be healed. Because God knows that sin is killing us. And what Paul is saying, that anyone who understands that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, that are lost and broken, that are in bondage to sin, can be saved if you would call on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because Jesus, being sinless, met that standard for us. He becomes the appropriate sacrifice as our surgeon to remove that sin. He gives us his righteousness so we can have a new life. And anyone who would call on the name of Jesus to save them will be saved. Their sins will be forgiven, their bondage will be removed, and they can walk in newness of life and live the way that God has designed them. And, and I'll just, I don't do this very often. If anyone here is like, I want that and I need that, I would say this. You stand up, you walk to the front right now, I will stop the service and I will pray with you to come to know Jesus. I have no problem doing that. You can do that now. You can do that afterwards. You can talk to anyone on staff that we love you so much that you would come to a saving faith to know that you can be saved from the wrath of God. And so as he then gives this gospel presentation, I love what he does. He says, you have to do something with Jesus. How will you respond to this truth? Every single one of us has to deal with this truth. And that's where we have our response. And this is what happens after Paul gives his message. 13, 42 through 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Pay attention to that, that, that phrase, the word of the Lord. It happens four times here. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy 
and with the Holy Spirit. So they finish this up. And they're like, we want more. This is crazy. Like what you just said, we've never heard before. You know what I love? When you lead and teach and preach from God's word, people want more. They don't want Simon's words. They want the the word of the Lord is what they want. And they said, we want you to come back next week. Please share more with us. Please, we don't want you to leave. We want to know more about what you're talking about. And they wanted to hear more truth. Truth is found in God's word. That is where truth is. It is the plumb line, it is the standard by which we hold all things. Why do we preach from God's word? Because we want truth. I don't want pithy sayings. I don't want to feel good about myself, though the Bible can make me feel good that I've been saved by Jesus through grace and mercy. I want to know what God has to say. I want to know what's timeless, unchanging, eternal. For the next week, they spoke and taught um, those men and women about the truth of Jesus and how he fulfilled all that they were waiting for. So all these Jews were waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah. It's like, he came. He's here. He did the thing. Like, you have access to him now. And the word spread and spread and spread. Because here's the thing. The truth of God spreads to the very heart of our deepest desires and longings. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to know that we have purpose and meaning in this life. And the gospel speaks to the very core and the heart of those issues. God's truth breaks down those walls. It sees the the great need of our hearts and meets it in every single way. But this funny thing happened. The next week they show up And while before there was these Gentiles that had converted to Judaism that they kind of let be in the synagogue, like, hey, you can hear and you can be a part of it. I mean, you're a Gentile, but we're Jews. And so you you can come listen. You hear about this great God. Well, everything changed because the whole city showed up and it's a Gentile city for the most part. And now all the Jews are completely outnumbered. They're like, wait, wait, we're the special ones here. What's going on? And so suddenly all these Jews are like, wait, this is for us? We can have sins forgiven? We can be accepted? And you know what's happening in this moment that the Jews are struggling with? Before they were above them because they followed all the rules. They were the chosen people. And now they're on a level playing field. I don't like that. I want to be important. Look at my works. Look at how religious I am. Look at how holy I am. Don't worry, Padawan, come along. I'll show you the ways if you just follow me. Well, this made the Jews, as Paul says, filled with jealousy. Because of that, they rejected Paul, they rejected the truth, and they rejected the word of the Lord. This is a lot about what's going on in their hearts. Paul calls them out and he says, Hey, man, here's the deal we're going to preach to the Gentiles. Then he quotes God's word again. Isaiah 49, 6 is this section about being a light to the Gentiles, right? So he says that this is what I'm going to do. And you know what I love about this? So this is Old Testament. This is with the Israelites. This is with the the children of Abraham. And in this, we see that the plan from the very beginning was that God was going to share this light, this hope, this truth with the entire world, with all the Gentiles. That's what he was going to do. He's like, I've always planned this from the get-go. 
Like I said it in Genesis 12 when I was talking to Abraham and what I was going to do. How could you be so thick? This was the purpose. This was the point. And these Gentiles, are, they're filled with joy and praise and, and, and they have life. And they're lifting up, not Paul, not Barnabas. They're lifting up the word of the Lord. That the true message of the gospel came to them. Four times that phrase is used. It's a building crescendo. It keeps getting better and better that God's word is what changes hearts and brings people to him. These people were saved because here's the thing. God's word, the gospel, is powerful. It is his power. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. Don't be afraid to share the word of God with those in need. Don't be afraid. All of these men and women that we read about boldly stepped out in faith because they believe that the gospel is the power of God. And if God can work, then God will work. He will go before you. Well, you're like, well, Simon, it says in here that, that they were appointed, so we know that God is the one who calls. God is the one who saves. God is the one who's doing the work in the hearts of men and women to draw them into him, right? Well, then why should we even evangelize? Why should we be evangelistic? It's very interesting to me that this generation right now really struggles with the idea of evangelism. And, and I think it's really based out of a, a care for others and a love for others. I don't think it's a negative way, but unfortunately, the results are negative, that in their attempt to be loving by not trying to force something down someone's throat, they're being unloving by not sharing the truth of the gospel with them, which is what they desperately need. So well, why should I share then, Simon? If God saves and God does these doing so why should I share? I was reading James Montgomery Boyce this week. He, I read him a lot as I was kind of doing preparation and study for this. And he made this quote, which I thought was really good for the idea of like, well, if God saves everybody and needs all the work, then why should I share and evangelize? He says this. The God who appoints the end also appoints the means. And the means he has appointed is the evangelism of others is our witness. I don't know who God's saving. So I treat everyone as though he is and I bring that message because God has called us at a specific place and a specific time with a specific purpose to be lights in dark areas to people that need to hear the gospel. See, God is calling us to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And last I checked, depending on where you are on the earth, this could be the ends of the earth as well. We have been called to do that. The fourth thing that we see in regards to how they evangelize, what they do is they feed those who are hungry. Um, growing our, bringing our kids up, it was always interesting to watch our kids um, you know what's really hard to do? Feed a baby who's not hungry. You ever try to do that? Just goes great. They wear half the food. They get frustrated. They're playing with you. Like, Just eat the food! They're not hungry. See, that's what's happening as Paul and Barnabas are trying to share with the Jews. They're not hungry. They don't want the message. And so what do they do? They go to the ones that are hungry. They go to the ones that want the message. 
See, the Gentiles submitted to Jesus the Lord because they heard the word of the Lord and they realized their deep need and desire for him. The Jews rejected the word of the Lord because of their pride. Because they didn't think that they needed him. They didn't think that that MRI test result that came back as sinners, they didn't think it applied to them. And ultimately what we find is their idol was challenged and they didn't want to tear that idol down and put Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And what we see from this interaction with Paul and Barnabas is that the church in Antioch grew and it thrived for hundreds of years as history would show. Sharing the gospel is hard. Can we just, it's hard. It's scary at times. And it's not promised success, is it? Because if it was, you're like, I just share with everybody. Everybody come to Jesus. This place would be packed. It'd be great. But that's not how it works, is it? People respond differently. Some people will respond with submission and some with rejection. But at the end of the day, if it's the Lord who saves and draws people in, you know what it's not up to? Me. It's not up to me. And I can boldly proclaim that knowing that God is doing that work in their hearts, not me. It also takes the pressure off. Like, I don't have all the right words to say and I can't quote all the scriptures and I don't know exactly how to weave it all together. You don't have to. If God can talk through a donkey, he can talk through me. Just saying. I didn't say you, I said me. So just don't get angry, no emails. And what I love is, I'm gonna kind of, I'm gonna start wrapping it up here. In Isaiah 52, 7, It says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace and brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You're like, well, that's that's, those are the Israelites they're talking about. They're not talking about us. That's about Zion. Everything is pointing to something larger, and that larger thing is Christ. Paul understood that, which is why in Romans 10, 14 through 15, he requotes that with taking the gospel forward. And he says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul got it. He understood it. We are called to go on mission. That's who we are as Christians. We get to do a lot of other fun things in life, but that is our primary focus on everything that we do because it's the only thing that has eternal value that lasts forever. Who has God placed in your life? Who does he want you to bring the good news to this week? I want you to take a few minutes. As I invite the band to come back up, I want you to take a few minutes and ask God, God, Who have you placed in my life that I can bring the word of the Lord to? That I can show them your truth and your power? Who do you want me to step out in faith and trust with? And just to bring together the the three main points that we really talked about today. One, are you looking for opportunities? Are you looking for opportunities to share the message of Jesus with the hurt, broken, lost, and dying world? Two, do you know the message of the gospel? 
My hope is after today you've seen what the gospel message is. If you don't know, talk with it. We want to help you understand the gospel more if you don't understand it. And it's, there's no shame if you don't. We want to help you. That's our job as the leadership of this church. And then three, are you investing with those who are hungry? You banging your head against a wall and like, this person, well, that's okay. Give them time. Let the seeds sit there. Go find those that are hungry and keep sharing. He'll lead you. He'll, he'll bring those people into your life. I want to pray, and then we're going to move into a time of communion. Lord Jesus, how grateful are we that you would save us, that you would give us life when all we knew was death, that you would transform us into men and women of righteousness, a part of your kingdom. Lord, I ask that if there are men and women here today that don't know you, that maybe today for the first time they would bow a knee, they would call out to you, that they would confess, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and be welcomed into the throne room of God and the kingdom of his people. And Lord, for those that are, let's just be honest, we're all busy with life. That we would look at where we are and where you've placed us and see the mission that you've called us to, that we would look around and see broken men and women that need your truth. Allow us to be bold and proclaim who you are, to let them see the MRI of their lives according to your word and see that there is a surgeon who has solved the problem for those that confess him as Lord and bend a knee to him as Lord of their life. We love you. Please empower us to be men and women who carry the word of the Lord forward. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.